right, so we are going to continue in the series in First Peter, and we are in week four of Kingdom Submission. We have two more weeks in First Peter, and so we are going to wrap this up in a couple of weeks. So I'm going to preach a message titled this morning, um, The Attributes of a Church That Please the Lord. The Attributes of a Church That Please the Lord. Do we want to be a church that pleases the Lord here today? We want to be Christians that please the Lord, but I believe that it's important that we as a congregation, as a local church, that we please the Lord. So before we jump in, would you pray with me? Well, we come before you this morning and, and we thank you so much for the privilege of gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, it is a high honor that we would gather and worship you together, that we worship you together as a family of God. And God, I pray that we would never take that lightly. And Lord, it is a high honor for me to be able to open your word and to preach it. And Lord, I pray that, that I would never lose sight of that. And I pray that your people would have receptive hearts, that they would be hungry for your word and for your truth to transform them. They would be ready to receive it. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to open my mouth to preach your word and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the attributes of a church that please the Lord. So what kind of church is it that pleases the Lord? What kind of church, if you were to look at a church and you were to say, that church right there, that church pleases the Lord. And we would, if I was asked that question, I passed the mic around this congregation and I would say, would you tell me what you think it is? What are the attributes of a church that would please God, that would be pleasing? And we would have varying answers, would we not? Don't you think that's one of the most important questions that any church would ask? What is it? Now, when we're thinking about a church, We're not talking about the building. You all know that. We're not talking about the organization, the office staff. We're not talking about uh, the the church as as a whole, though I do believe it's important for the church as a whole that represents Christ that we would please the Lord. But when I'm talking about a church, I'm talking about this church. I'm talking about any local congregation. A church is made up of individual Christians, you and I, who gather together on a regular basis And we worship the Lord together. We study the word of God together. We pray together. We serve one another. We serve the Lord together. That is what makes up a church. And so we are a church. Are you a part of this church? We are a church. This is our church family. It's a church body. And so the question that's important for us to ask on a regular basis is, what are the attributes that we need to have that would demonstrate a a, a church life and the way that we function that pleases God? Because I do believe when you read in Revelation, the first three chapters in Revelation, you can see attributes of churches that do not please the Lord. You can see attributes, and when you read the seven letters to the seven churches, the Lord rebukes churches because they are not functioning as he would want them to function. So it is possible for us as a church, as living word church, to not function properly, to not be what we're called to be. And, and that could be a very ex- um, exhaustive message. Like, like I could preach on many different subjects about that, but there's one subject in particular that we're going to cover that I believe in this text in First Peter, that we are given the attributes of, of a church, of, a, of how we are to interact with each other that, that is so pleasing to the Lord. So would you, would you go to the text with me? This is what we're going to look at. We're going to really look at only one verse. I'm going to read two sections, but we're going to only unpack one verse here this morning. This is 1 Peter 3, 8. And what we looked at 
in this whole section. This is one section here in 1 Peter 3 that's all about submission, right? Submission to government. Submission to unjust rulers. Submission in marriage. You remember last week, submission in marriage? How wives are to submit even, even to an, an unsaved spouse and, and husbands are to live in a submissive attitude towards the Lord which will be demonstrated in love of their wife. You guys remember that message from last week? And so now the submission goes from the government to unjust rulers, from the home. Now it comes to the church. We are called to submit to one another. Now notice what Peter says here, 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, again, he's wrapping up his thought about submission. Finally, all of you. I told you to submit to the government. I told you to submit to unjust rulers. I told you to submit in marriage. But now all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is what we're going to unpack. These are the attributes. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are the attributes that are pleasing to the Lord. Now look what Peter says in chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. You guys ever show hospitality and you grumble about it? As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as, as one who speaks the oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. Amen? That in everything that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Why do we want to walk in these attributes? It's because we want God to be glorified through our church in and through our church. So these are the attributes. Uh, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. And this is how we're going to frame it. This is the first attribute. We are called, this is how that first attribute it plays out. We are called to walk, to work, and to serve one another. We're called to walk, to work, and to serve one another. Walk together, work together, and serve together. That's what the text is pointing to when he's talking about unity of mind. Finally, all of you have unity of of mind. What does it mean in this text to have unity of mind? It means to be like-minded. You know that's difficult. How many of you can't have a like mind with your spouse that you live with? You can't have a like mind with your kids. Do you have a like mind with your boss? That's quiet, my goodness. Y'all are y'all are listening or what is going on here today, right? I should be used to that. <laughs> How many of you think it's difficult to have a like mind with people? But what, is it, what does it really mean when it's saying a like mind? It's not, just, it's not just that we all think the same because that is not true. You figure that out in life, right? You get, you get a couple people together and you're going to disagree. You get hundreds of people together, you're definitely going to disagree on things. But the core of what it means to, be uni- to have unity of mind is unity of spirit. That's the, that's the next layer of meaning of this phrase, unity of mind, is that we are unified together at a spiritual level, that we may see things different about what church should look like, how it should function, what we should do, what we should prioritize, but there is a unity of spirit because our spirit, our, the depth of who we are, is submitted to the same Lord. You, you, do you guys follow me? So this attribute of unity of mind it's one of the most challenging ones for us to live out in the life of a church. 
unity of mind, unity of spirit. It is so hard to walk in unity within the context of a local congregation. And Peter is ending this section. He's saying, finally, all of you, I've told you what you need to do in, in, in your life in many different realms. But now all of you together in the church have unity of mind. So my question that I, I, I thought about when I was looking at this text was how often do we walk in disunity in the local church? And you know, I think the reason why we walk in disunity in the local church is because we focus on non-essential things. You know, there are things that all of us think are important as concerning the life of a local church. There's things that we will look at and we'll say, well, our church needs to do this. And our church should be like this. And and the pastor should preach like this. And the music should sound like this. And we have all these non-essential things that, that, that in our minds are essential and so whenever we are in the context of a local church and the, 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 the life of a church, unity of mind is so hard to come by because when we walk through the door, we have that paradigm or that lens with which we are looking through and that is the filter that we see everything that happens in the life of a local church. And I'm here to tell you it's almost unavoidable. It's almost un- unavoidable. But it takes a decision on our part to say that I am not going to focus on the non-essential realities of the life of the church. I'm going to focus on the unity of the spirit. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, unity of spirit, unity of heart. Some of the common things that will divide a local congregation would be the aesthetics of a building. I mean... Thankfully, God's blessed us with a wonderful building, but I, I promise you that if I made a decision or we made a decision to change something with the looks, somebody's not going to be happy. I mean, I've heard stories, horror stories of carpet being changed in churches and people leaving the church because the carpet is different. I'm thinking, oh man, I mean, was it that big of a deal? The music's too loud. The music's not loud enough. Some of you could think, how is that possible? The music's not loud enough. Were you at the Jeremy Camp concert? Who, who came to the concert on, on Sunday night? Wasn't it a wonderful concert? Wasn't it loud? Some of you want it to sound like that this morning. You want it that loud. Some of you, you, you would not come back to this church. <laughs> but, but these are the things that commonly divide us in the church. Or the music doesn't sound like Jeremy Camp's band. You want to have, you want to have a professional quality music where you go and you worship. Or there's not enough focus on media. We need more media things. We need more media. Or there's too much media. Why are they going to put a big screen on the stage? Or there's not enough focus on foreign missions. Why don't we worry about foreign missions? And then you got the other side that says, well, all they do is focus on foreign missions. No, they, they, they don't care about their neighbors. There's no local missions. These are the things that are common that will divide. And and the list could go on and on, on and on. Things that we think a church should focus on, a church should be. And it it fights against a unity of mind and a unity of spirit. I'm going to read a section from Philippians. This is amazing when you really stop to think about this. Okay, I want to build this up for you. Okay, this is the church of Philippi. The apostle Paul is going to write a letter to the church at Philippi. The great apostle Paul. He sends a letter. It gets there. I don't know how it got there. By pigeon, I don't know. They didn't have the United States Postal Service, but they got the letter. Somehow it traveled. Probably took months and months and months to get there. The great Apostle Paul is writing a letter to the church at Philippi. It gets there. 
And the elder, the lead elders of the church, they, they get the letter and, and word spreads to the congregation, the local church, and they say, Paul sent a letter. We're going to gather next Lord's Day. We're going to gather and we're going to read the letter from Paul. Can you feel the excitement that would have been there? Think about that. The great apostle Paul is writing a letter to a local church. And the letter is there to encourage them and to build them up. And, and he's going to speak truth to them. And, and I believe that they were hanging on every word. Is that how we respond when we, we open the Bible? Right? Let's think about that just for a moment. That's a little sidebar note. It's so convicting when you think about it like that. They were hanging on every word. This is the word from the great apostle Paul. He's going to speak to us. Truth of, from, from God. So the letter gets open. That would have been a small gathering, a small setting of people. Whoever read it opened up the letter. They begin to read it. They get to chapter 1, chapter 2. He's rebuking. He's encouraging. He's saying, do this, do that. Here's how you should live. Chapter 3. Then he gets to chapter 4. And look at chapter 4. Verse 2. I entreat Eodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. Can you imagine Eodia and Syntyche? Are they in the room that day? They might have been, but can you imagine the great apostle Paul writes a letter to the church. It's open and it's read and you get called out. How would you like to get called out? Aren't you glad I don't do that on Sundays? Aren't you glad I don't look at you and call you out and say... Help that woman over there. She's disagreeing with that woman over there. Can you imagine that? If I said, so-and-so up here sitting in the risers, they have a, a disagreement with this person over here. Would y'all help them out, please? Help them out. They need some help. We, we, like, seriously, that's what it would have been like. He's saying, I entreat these two women to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women. And look how he describes them. They have labored side by side. He was saying they used to be side by side with me in the gospel. Together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now we don't know what the disagreement was. Paul doesn't say it in Philippians. He doesn't tell us what what the disagreement was. But I know the church knew. It was probably one of those things. It was the talk of the church. Did you hear Would you believe what they said, what they're doing, what happened? But you notice it says that they were side by side. But something drew a wedge. Something came in between. And and listen to what Peter's saying. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. They had the unity of mind. They were side by side. And they were working together for the sake of the gospel. But something brought in disunity. So I don't know what it is that will bring in disunity into this church. And I don't know what will bring in disunity to, to be, be, between brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't know what those things are, but they can be varied things. There are many different things that can happen. But we are not called to walk in disunity. We are called to have a unity of mind, a unity of spirit. Paul doesn't mention what it is, but he mentions that they are not side by side anymore. But if you notice, he says that they were side by side. And what were they focused on? The gospel of Jesus Christ. My sermons may not be what people want it to be. 
the music may not be what people want it to be. And, and the, the length of the service, the time, however, all these different things, these ideas, we may not reach out the way that we should reach out or, or in, in, in people's minds or, or, or whatever. All the varied reasons why we disagree or we separate, we divide, or, or someone may not talk to you the way that you want them to talk to you. Or somebody may forget you and forget your name. Or it would probably be me who forgets your name and I apologize. All these varied reasons. But what is it that we have most in common? That you were lost and I was lost. And I I had no hope in this life. I was dead in my trespasses and sins and so were you. But God, who is rich in mercy with his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he has made us alive together with Christ, for by grace we have been saved. And we may disagree on everything else, but we have that one common truth in unity. Do you believe that here today? And we we must strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. Our unity is centered around Christ. It is centered around gospel truth. Now, I just want to say this. We do not compromise the truth of Scripture for a false sense of unity. So we don't go on the, on the other end that we're just going to have unity and not care about truth. No, we stand on biblical truth and we unify around the truth of God's word. And the core of that truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the center of our unity. But we also don't allow our preferences and desires to breed offense and disagreement in the church. And thus, like cancer spread throughout the family and hindering and it hinders forward gospel momentum you ever been in 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 an argument let's just use a spouse as an example that could be a common one we experience but it could be with anybody you ever been in an argument with anybody you're in an argument you're arguing and 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 it's just like tunnel vision that's all you see and then you finally settle it you get through you figure it out and what inevitably happens after you figure it out. You step back and you see the big picture and you think, oh, I'm such an idiot. Why did I allow that to drive a wedge in between this relationship? Why did I allow my ideas of how things are supposed to be to drive a wedge between something that is so beautiful? It's the same picture within the body of Christ. You know, the big picture for us is the gospel of grace. That is the big picture. As I said earlier, we're all sinners. We're separated from a holy God. But God, he has graciously saved us. It's not, a, it's not works. We couldn't earn it. There's nothing good you can do that could earn salvation. There's no works possible that you could do to please God. This is the big picture of the gospel. It's a gospel of grace, unmerited favor, mercy, Never-ending mercy. We repent and we believe and we're saved. We're born again. You know, sowing discord and sowing disunity is a sin that the Lord hates. Do you know that? Look at Proverbs 6. There's seven things the Lord hates. Proverbs 6, it's interesting that this lands in the list of seven things. If you could think of seven things the Lord hates and you made a list, I bet you your list, wouldn't, your list would have more things on this, that's on this list. You'd have different things that's on this list. Listen to the things the Lord hates in Proverbs 6. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. 
haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Think about that. God hates disunity among brothers. He hates it that brothers and sisters in Christ would walk in disunity. Do you think about that for a moment? He hates it. You ever hate something? You ever dislike something so much that you would categorize it as hate? And would you think about the Lord hating something? We don't think that the Lord hates anything, right? We think of God as love. But the Lord hates disunity. That means he really, really, really doesn't like it. He wants unity. He doesn't want discord. I love I love the, the description of unity in Psalm 133. I love this description. You've heard this before. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then there's two descriptions the psalmist gives of what that unity is like. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It is like, this unity is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord's commanded the blessing, life forevermore. So it's when brothers dwell together in unity, it is like two things. This picture of the oil running down the head of Aaron. Aaron was a priest, and when he was anointed to be priest, the oil would run over his head and down his beard. So what is the picture there? That unity among brothers is a picture of power. What is anointing? When you're anointed to to do something, it means God is empowering you. So what is unity? What, what, What is unity among brothers like? It's like power. Power is produced through unity. It's like the dew of Hermon. What does that mean? It's like the the dew which falls on the mountains. It's a picture of the waters that run down the mountain that feed into the into the bodies of water that all all are around the bottom of the mountain into a, a community, into a city. What is that picture of? It's a picture of refreshing. The dew that refreshes, the dew that turns into water that goes down and refreshes people in their drinking supplies, right? So so what does unity look like? Unity amongst brothers and sisters in Christ produces power. And produces refreshing. Do you believe that here today? Amen. I believe it with all my heart. And this is, this is what pleases the Lord. That we would be unified. Is that what you want here today? It's what we want here today. What is the next attribute that reflects the church that is mutually submitted to one another? First we have unity of mind. Next look back at the text. Finally all of you have unity of mind. And sympathy. We're called to have sympathy. And I would like to describe it like this. We are called to weep with those who weep. We're called to work, to walk, to serve together in unity of mind. But we are called to weep with those who weep. We're called to have sympathy with one another. I love how Tina in her prayer for mothers. Did you notice what happened whenever she began to talk about mothers, people who have lost their mothers? Why did she, Tina would cry for most anything because she has such a sensitive heart. But what happened whenever she talked about the loss of a mother? She began, the depth of her emotions began to well up. And I know if there's anybody who's sympathetic with you here today that have lost a mother, it is Tina Trosclair. That's what I'm talking about. She was a living example of this text. Why did she have that deep sympathy? It's because she has experienced what you're walking through. And that is the type of relationship we have to have with one another. We must feel the burdens of those that are part of our church family. We must weep with those who weep. Look what, 
Romans 12 says. Rejoice with those who rejoice, but weep with those who weep. I want you to remember the context. We're thinking about this sympathy that we're to have with one another. Think back to the context. Think about the amount of sorrow that would have been experienced in this early church. Think about the amount of sorrow. This is the early church that's being persecuted because of their faith. Mothers being lost because of persecution. Brothers and sisters being lost. Torture and, and trials and pain and going hunger and, and, and sickness and disease just across the board. Suffering and pain. And Peter is looking at this church. He's, he's writing them and he's saying, look, look, I'm telling you that this submission that I'm calling you to in the, with the government and with those that are in authority and in marriage, it has to come into the life of the church because you are going through difficult seasons. You are struggling right now and you need each other. Have sympathy for those who are suffering among you. Why why is it that that should be natural for us as Christians? To be sympathetic with one another. Why should that be natural? Why do you think? It's because that's how our Lord was. We reflect Christ. When we're sympathetic, we reflect our Lord. Do you remember with Jesus when Lazarus died? You remember when Lazarus died? Jesus gets news that Lazarus is dying, is about to die, and then gets where he's dead, and he tells his disciples, don't worry, Lazarus is still sleeping. He's just sleeping. And then they're all confused, and he says, okay, he's dead. <laughs> he's dead. And he waits three days, and he finally gets there. But I want to read a couple of things from here. Listen to this. This is John eleven five. Now Jesus loved. Martha and her sister, Lazarus. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Isn't that powerful? Jesus loved them. Now, look, this is the conclusion of the story when Jesus is about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Listen to this. John 11. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why'd you wait three days? I know you have the power to heal. When he saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And it says, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some people say that Jesus was simply crying and weeping because of the brokenness that sin has caused in humanity because because of the curse of sin, now people die. And so he was weeping over what he's seeing in humanity. And I believe that is a part of his mourning and his weeping that he looks and he sees the brokenness that because of sin, now we decay, we die, and we experience loss. And I, I think that that was a part of his weeping. But I don't believe that his weeping was not because of his deep love for Lazarus. I think it was. In verse 5 it says he loved Lazarus. I believe that whenever the word came that Lazarus was dead and he saw the mourning and the grieving, he was moved with sympathy. So whenever we as a body of believers, when we walk in sympathy and compassion towards one another, it is a reflection of the compassion and the love of our Lord. Do you know? Do you know what it is? that your brothers and sisters are walking through right now? Here's some questions we, we, we may ask. I think these are good questions for, ask, for us to ask. 
Do we know the people we sit near on Sunday mornings? I know you like know your family that sits next to you, but do you know your other family? What about behind you? To your right, to your left, do you know them? Do we know the people? And I know the answer. The answer is no. I don't. I don't. So there's no condemnation. I'm just saying, I know the answer. The answer is no, we don't. We don't know most of them. We know some of them. But do we really know them? Next question we need to ask ourselves is, has, have we asked them about their life? And this is, this is for all of us here today. Do you feel that? You feel what I feel? Have we asked them about their life? And here's another question I think is very important. What do we feel is our responsibility to each other as believers? Do we feel we even have a responsibility to know the people around us and to know about their life? Do we, do we think we have a responsibility? Those are good questions for us to ask. And that leads us to our next. I'm going to answer the question with this next, these next two attributes. The answer to that question is, do we, the answer to the question of, do we have a responsibility to one another? Here's what the text says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, and there's two attributes in one we're going to cover here. Brotherly love and a tender heart. So I want to say it like this. We're called to love each other like family. We're called to love each other like family. Who in here has family? What responsibility do you have with your family? If you decided, mom and dad, you know, I'm done with my kids. You know what? Great Mother's Day, but I'm tired. That whole description up there, I can't handle that. You, you, we, we throw you in jail. Right? I'm done. done with, I'm done with my family. Pe- people do it. They say I'm done. And we would say that would be sin. Would it not? But you notice what Peter says, an attribute we're to have, is that we're to have brotherly love. And when you look up that word, it's the word that literally means like family, like brothers and sisters. So you are my brother. You are my sister. Like I had, uh, I, I, I had my, I didn't have a brother there last night. <laughs> I was at a birthday party last night for my grandmother, but none of my siblings were there. But if they would have been there, Right? I have my brother, I have my sister, but you are my brother. And you are my sister. You are my family. And it's interesting, this phrase, brotherly love and a tender heart. This phrase, tender heart, it literally, I'm going to tell you what it literally means. It means that, it means that your bowels are good. <laughs> that's what it means. It's interesting to do word studies like that. You'd have never thought that that's what that meant. But what, together, brotherly love and good bowels and a tender heart. It means that to the depth of who you are, that you have a care and a concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ. You love them to the depth of who you are. So back to the question. What is our responsibility with one another here today? What is Peter telling the church? What's God's word telling us? We're to have brotherly love and a a deep love for one another. For some, we don't feel like we have responsibility for the lives of those we worship with Sunday after Sunday. And if we're not careful, that mindset will lead us to slowly drift into a consumeristic experience of church. We just come in, come out. I hear the message. It sounds good. It, it, it ministered to my life, and I was convicted, and I'm growing, and I'm maturing, and it was good. It met my needs. But if we're not careful, that's all church becomes for us. 
And I don't want that for our church family. I know that not all of us can meet with every single one of us. I know I'm not calling us to know everybody's name and to know everyone's situation. It's not what I'm calling for. I'm calling that for us as a church, as God's word is, is saying for us right here, is that all of us have to have brotherly love and a tender heart towards one another. That there should be people in your life that you're connected to in this church that you see them as family, that you're doing life with them, you're loving them, you're cooking food for them when they're in the hospital or when they just get out, you're, you're visiting them in the hospital, you're, 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 you, you are carrying their burdens. You know, but there, there is, and this is, this is a concern I have with the church today. And it's not been anything new. I think 2020 just exacerbated it and made it and, and really demonstrated what we really were as a church as a whole. I'm not talking about just this church, but the church as a whole. Is that there's skepticism about the church. Do we need the church? Should we gather? Does it even matter? Can I just meet in my home with people and it'd be okay? And do I really need to come and sit and listen to pastors? Or, 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 or there's just skepticism about the church built in now. 2020 really brought that to the surface. There's a lot of Christians, that, the, the word now is deconstruction. A lot of Christians are, are deconstructing and they're looking at their old models of church and life and they're, and they're basically saying, I, I don't know if I believe that anymore and they're, they're deconstructing and, and there's just cynicism about the church. And, and I read a tweet by a famous Christian music artist and some of the things I'm going to read to you from this quote, you probably will agree with and I do to some of it, but I want you to just feel what he's saying. He says, to be clear, Churchy isn't the same as the church. I love the church, the people, not the building. I believe in constant fellowship and leadership and elders, but the songs and styles, the lingo and certain customs aren't me. I don't know all the songs. They usually aren't my style. I don't subscribe to the doctrinal tribes. I don't resonate with the Western construct, which is run more like a business or a Sunday event. No shade to those who love the culture of this. Worship as you please. I'm just being honest about myself. When I, when, when I read it, I was breaking down. He's a very influential Christian artist, and I'm breaking down what he's saying there. I'm like, yeah, I agree, I agree. But one thing I noticed as I went through it, it's me, it's me. Uh, this phrase here, he says, I, worship as you please. I'm just being honest about myself. And this is our culture here today. It's about my truth. You have your truth. And that's not just area of church and Christianity. This is morality as a whole. You have your truth. I have my truth. You do what you want and I'll do what I want. And that mindset and that attitude is just an undercurrent as concerning the church today. Skepticism and criticism. And, and look, I don't know if the brother's even going to church. I don't know what he's doing. But if I had to guess, I don't think he is. Now, is he, does he have a local fellowship of people that he's connecting with? And having fellowship with, he says that he loves constant fellowship. So my, my question when I read that was, okay, so what do we do? We just blow the whole thing up? Just close the buildings? Quit meeting, quit gathering because it doesn't matter? My answer to him and to others is no. God, this is God's church. We are his people. And, 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 and do, we need to, do we need to grow and to adjust and to change as God has called us to? Absolutely, we will do that. But what God has set apart and what God has established, we will believe and support in. Think for a moment about how the undertones of that statement from this tweet would have fit in with the recipients of Peter's letter. Think of the skepticism and the, 
the criticism built into that tweet, how would that have impacted those who were living in the first century church? It would not have fit very well. Why is it? Because it was a culture of persecution. It was a culture of actually suffering for your faith. It wasn't a culture of my style. I don't like the music. I don't like the lingo. I don't like the buildings. I don't like the organization and the business side. I, I, I. There's nothing like that in the early church. Why? Because they were dying for their faith. You know what? Whenever you're fat and sassy and everything's going well, it becomes about me. The intense pressure increased the early church's desire and need to gather. I would say this, that the lack of societal pressure has lulled people to sleep and deceived them about their need to gather. Because we don't have societal pressure. We don't have it like they did in the early church. And so as a result, hey, I can rethink church. I, can, I don't really need to gather. I don't, it doesn't really matter. I can be skeptical and critical. And again, I'm not saying that the church doesn't need to adjust and change. But do you guys hear what I'm trying to say? It's just, it's just pushing away. It's just pushing back. It's this deconstruction. But we're called to come together, not push back. Look, look, the style may not be my style. It may not, look, it, it may not be the way I like it. But you, these are my people. And I may not get what I want out of church, but these are my people. Brotherly love and a, and a tender heart. Amen? What I read when I read the text is I read, This is what I see. I see marginal, occasional, if nothing else interferes, if I like the sermons, if I like the ministries, if the songs are my style. But you know what we're called to in the church? We're called to a huge list of one another's. You ever heard of the one another's in Scripture? This huge list of what we're called to do with, for one another and with one another. It's on the back of your handout. You can take this home and study it later. This is, just a, this is not all of the list. These are the one another's. One another commands in Scripture. It says, love one another. Be devoted to one another. Romans 12, honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Build up one another. Be like-minded towards one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Care for one another. Serve one another, bear one another's burdens, forgive one another, be patient with one another, speak the truth in love, be kind and compassionate to one another, speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, submit to one another, look to the interest of one another, bear with one another, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, stir up one another to love and good works, show hospitality to one another. Employ the gifts that God has given us for the benefit of one another. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Pray for one another. Confess your faults to one another. That's the context of what we do within the body of Christ. And that's why we need to gather. That's why God has called us to come together. To not approach church as with, with skepticism and criticism and, and look at all the faults and things that we don't like about it. But instead we flip the script and we say, these are the good things. We have unity of mind around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have sympathy with one another. We weep with those who weep. We care for one another. We have brotherly affection and a tender heart towards one another. God has called me to this place. And lastly, here today, this is the last one. We're going to conclude here. We're called to have, finally, all of you have a humble mind. We're called to a life of Humility. Fourthly, a life of humility. 
The attribute of humility keeps us on track concerning all of our relationships in this life, including our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. A humble mind helps us to not forget that we are weak on our own. You are not meant to do life on your own. You are meant to have brothers and sisters in Christ who will stir you on, who will push you on, who will confront you when you're walking in sin and disobedience, who will lovingly restore you out of that sin, who will walk with you through that whole journey of grief and loss and grief. We are not meant to do life alone. A humble mind helps us not to think too highly of ourselves and our opinions. How many of you like your, your, your opinions? <laughs> you do you like your opinions? I get to share mine every Sunday. And I, you know, I think about that often, about how I get to, sh- I get to share my opinions about, because that's what I'm doing, right? To my best of the ability that God's given me, I'm trying to stay close to the text, right? I'm trying to faithfully explain the text and apply it. But we all like our opinions. We all like our own thoughts. But a humble mind helps us to realize, as I said last week, that our wife has a brain. (laughs) She thinks too. My brother thinks too. My sister thinks too. They have opinions. A humble mind causes me to walk in humility about my opinions and your opinions. And and we we lay aside the non-essential to unify around the essential. A humble mind motivates us to serve one another. It motivates us to love one another. It motivates us to walk through difficult seasons together. How many of you, you could say that somebody in the body of Christ helped you walk through a difficult season of your life and you're so grateful? Is there anybody here today? Did you say that? Yeah. I would also say that if I asked the opposite question, some of you would say, no, I have not experienced that. And that's a challenge for you. I pray it would not be that way. Just like, just like Jesus is our example in everything, he's our example in humility. Look at Christ as our example, Philippians 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, unity of mind. This is what we're talking about. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then Paul breaks it down and says that Christ humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. He had all the rights to come and do what he wanted on the earth, but he came as a humble servant. He came, God became man. He humbled himself and he came to serve humanity and Christ stands as our example. And scripture tells us, have that mind among yourselves. Finally, all of you, let's all of us have that mind. So we're going to do it here today. We're going to try. I've thought about all the scenarios. I've thought about all the caveats. I've thought about all the reasons why I shouldn't do what I'm about to do, but it's okay. We're going to do it anyway. But would you stand to your feet? We're going to pray for each other. So let's go back to our questions. What were our questions? 
Do we know the people we sit near on Sunday mornings? Not the ones you know. Some of you, you, you can head for the exits right now. <laughs> I'm fine with that. That's fine. Have we asked them about their life? And what do we feel is our responsibility to each other as believers? So, so we're, we're going to try something. I want you to turn around behind you, in front of you, beside you, somebody you don't necessarily talk to every day, see, pray for. Ask them, introduce yourself. Ask them about their life. Listen, listen, before y'all really get fellowshipping, listen, ask them how you can pray for them. And I, and I want y'all to pray. <laughs> Find somebody. If you're by yourself and you're still looking for, for somebody, turn around. There's somebody. Go join another circle. <laughs> all right. All right. Listen up. Listen. Listen real quick. Next, next instruction. Ask them how you can pray for them. And I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray for them. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I'm going to thank you for the precious prayers that are going on right now. Lord, I pray that we would live the truths of your word, that we would have unity of mind and sympathy, that we would have brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. I pray that that would permeate the life of this church, that we would be so unified together around the centrality of Christ and the gospel that there's nothing that could divide and separate us. I pray for that blessing that's commanded in Psalm 133. I pray that that blessing would be on this church, that we would be a church that loves and serves one another and in return serves the world. That we reach the world with the love of Christ that has transformed us. God, I pray a blessing over everyone here today. Bless all the mothers. Help them have a great Mother's Day today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.